George Floyd's murderer is convicted, the COVID vaccine isn't being rolled out in aged care or disability accommodation, one in three Australian households are suffering from financial stress, and the good news is the Super League is announced and dies in less than a week. Plus, good news about bananas. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison. With me, as always, is the super delightful, <laughs> the naturally expert sugar-free, creamy soda drinking, Van Batam. Not a paid advertisement. Not a paid advertisement. I like creaming soda and this has very little sugar. <laughs> Uh, also, you don't get into it, which is a plus. That's true. I, I like sugar. That'll come as a great surprise to anyone who's ever seen my belly, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Van, you know, we've got a lot to cover today, so let's dive straight into it because it's been a big news uh, week so far. Now, the murderer of George Floyd, and we can now call him that. We can literally call him a convicted murderer. It's so satisfying. Derek Chauvin has been found guilty on three charges related to the death of George Floyd, second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Um, this is this was announced earlier today. Um, the, the judge uh, read the verdict. Uh, he will remain in custody, Derek Chauvin, who will not be bailed. Uh, the sentencing will take place in eight weeks' time. Now, under under uh, Minnesota law, this is where this occurred. Obviously, it was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm. Uh, the, he can be sentenced only for one of those convictions because it's all related to the same thing. I think earlier yeah. today I, I thought maybe he was going to be sentenced for all three because there are some parts of America where if you're found guilty of multiple crimes in the same offence, you can end up with a 200-year sentence. There which... are some parts of America where having sex with animals is actually legal. So yeah. I think any yeah. universal pronouncements about their justice system beyond it has been absolutely subjected to, a, quite frankly, white supremacist racial bias from from inception, um, that's probably the only universal truth of the American yeah. legal system. And we know that the, those compounding sentences, if you like, um, do occur more often in the South and do occur predominantly in cases involving a black defendant. So it, anyway, the the issue here is that under Minnesota law, uh, he can be sentenced for up to 40 years. The presumptive sentence for his crimes will be 12 and a half years, and the prosecution can seek to go above that because of particular cruelty. I mean, it's be, been such a huge and, and, and momentous uh, situation that... that the, the death of George Floyd, or the murder of George Floyd, I should say, um, the the arrest of Derek Chauvin, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the global outpouring of of a commitment to racial justice that has come about as a result of all of these um, events, um, the 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 protests, the violence in America, the commitments that people have tried to get for for real policy and justice reform, uh, then what, is, what does all of this now mean, that this is, this is actually 
this case at least is seemingly like it's going to come to to an end and come to the kind of just conclusion that anyone who saw that footage taken by a 17 year old yeah so i mean would, it's would a draw. it's an absolutely watershed moment and you can understand the levels of emotion um, amongst the black community in america and and their allies in online today is really quite intense because you have to remember like I'm old we forget in our relationship because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I use so much moisturiser that I am quite old and I've got very visceral memories of things like the arrest of Rodney King in 1991 yeah. so Rodney King um, pursued by police driving a car under the influence um, high speed chase is arrested and there was unambiguous footage of the cops absolutely lashing him lashing yeah. him he was just he was beaten, beaten to within an inch of his life. Beaten wasn't he? to within an inch of his life, and uh, a, an observer filmed the encounter. Mm. Um, didn't result in disciplinary procedure, like disciplinary yeah. procedures against those police officers. Did result in riots uh, across LA and you know turmoil across America. And of course, this has been the recurring theme that the justice system in America serves Black Americans and White Americans very, very differently. That you can be beaten within an inch of your life by police on video and and you portrayed as the criminal and the problem. No one's saying that, you know, crimes don't get committed. But as we've seen, like with the death of Breonna Taylor, that woman had not committed a crime. Mm, that woman mm. was in bed in an apartment in the middle of the night where a group of cops came in and shot her. Mm. And again and again, we've seen these total miscarriages of any kind of justice procedure based on absolutely, culturally, systemically, the race of the victims of that violence. So what you have with George Floyd is this is a turning point where the Black Lives Matter movement, which exists to articulate this profound inequality and unfairness and injustice, Mm, mm. has had enough of an impact on the national conversation that the screamingly obvious, which is Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, has been acknowledged in a court of law. Like, it is ridiculous that it has taken the entire history of the United States to get to a point where a nine-minute video of a white man murdering a black man actually counts for something. And it, some of the journalists... In a busy street. It was in a busy street. It was in a busy street. And this is so... In the middle of the day, George busy Floyd street, um, passed a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes. Oh, right, right. It's literally the most yeah. petty kind of crime there yeah. is. And um, authorities were alerted. The police turned up. They dragged him out of his car at gunpoint. One of the um, images that was submitted in the trial evidence was a body cam photo by the police. And it's terrifying. Mm. This terrifying... George Floyd, big man, mm. terrified because he knows what's at the end of that police gun. The gun literally pointing at his head through the car. And they had him on the ground. Derek Chavan, of course, put his knee on his neck, as you and I both mm. know. If you're wearing a body cam, um, the body cam doesn't record what's happening beneath your knees. Mm. Um, George Floyd spends nine minutes dying, um, saying, I can't breathe, begging for his mother, you know, begging for help. And one of the things that came out in the trial that I think was so powerful was a a large group of people assembled around what was going on. Mm. And this 17-year-old girl, Donella Frazier, took a video and she realised at the time it was all she could do because the power of the badge, and this was what was said in the trial, the power of the badge that Derek Chavan had meant that 
none of those people could intervene in what they saw mm. happening. Like if Danella Fraser had run towards those cops, she would have been arrested, you know, and all these people or worse, or, or also killed. A 15-year-old was, you know, was killed by police in America today, you know, and so you had this group of people who were sort of historically aware in the moment where they were watching what was happening that they were there to bear witness and this was something that came out in the trial and this 17-year-old girl took this video because she she knew that that was the most she could do. Mm. And, I mean, it's incredibly emotional and one of the things in the trial was that the, the people who watched that happen were an incredible diversity of people that were black, they were white, they were men, they were women, they were young, they were old, and they all testified against Siobhan. Yeah. And, you know, to to think that that that's what it took was like an entire community of witnesses and video and all of those things to get mm. what seems like the most basic statement of obviousness. But one of the things that American politicians have been saying, Kamala Harris used the term a measure of justice mm. because, of course, George Floyd will never get justice because George Floyd is dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that this is a, a judicial process finally working the way that it should and Derek Chauvin will go to jail and, you know, it is unlikely his appeals will be successful, mm. you know, mm. and he is on remand. He has been remanded. Mm. These are things that never happen. But at the same time, you know, George Floyd has a little girl yeah. who's never going to see her father again. His sister and his brother were like, you know, this is a pr- process yeah. working the way it should, but where's our brother? Yeah. Like... Uh, and oh, sorry, that's all right. And look, I think I think a lot of people uh, are having a, a deeply, a, a rightly so, a deeply emotional response, <laughs> as 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 occurred when when this all came to light. You know, and, and I remember you and I participating in in a Black Lives Matter protest during the pandemic in a socially distanced and masked and responsible <laughs> way. And and well, I think and, everybody. It's just on a fundamental level, like it, it just. You know, there's the quote from Martin Luther King, which is being used a lot today, the uh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yep. And I think everybody who's been watching this has that real sense of historical weight, that this, the iniquity cannot continue. And it, and it does really raise that question, doesn't it? Because Biden, you know, um, Biden and Harris have said it was a murder in the full light of day and it ripped the blinkers off for the whole world to see. Biden followed his remark by saying systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. And and it encapsulates, I think, what a lot of people, certainly observers like myself um, in Australia see in America as this this real divide, this real um, this real racial almost segregation injustice. Um, and at the same time, it's raised for me, I have to say, questions about the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Oh, well, I think it's raised that question for everybody. You, you know, know, like these are not... Australia's not independent of a systemic racism problem no. in America. Like it's a it's a settled continent yeah. where there was an invasion and there was a colonisation followed by a genocide. And all of these assumptions, uh, they're 
baked into the social institutions that we have, not just in terms of structures, but structural prejudice and cultural pre- prejudice mm. and people who would tell you that they are not racist, mm. but who make racist decisions in a context of racist history and racist structure. Why haven't we implemented the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in Australia? How is it possible that 30 years on from an investigative, attuned, you know, stakeholder-led mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. that that hasn't happened, that there hasn't been a political will to redress that injustice. You know, it, I don't have an answer to that. I, well, I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people would want an answer to that. It it it, it has been thirty years. I think as of last week, um, and I have to say, I think more needs to be done. More more actual political commitment and more political will needs to be applied to addressing it. You know, you know there are there are big questions here around, you know, what I mean, the word privilege gets used a mm. lot and sometimes it it can be used by very young people who are very yeah, earnest. It can be misapplied. Who, can be who misapplied. use it in, in ways that are not necessarily helpful. Yeah. Um I'm thinking specifically of the term like orgasm privilege, which I okay. was just like, can we maybe use different language? If we're talking about systemic injustice and looking at what privilege means, there's an inherent weight of power in certain groups within society who don't who have the privilege of not having to care mm. about what racial injustice means. Mm. on a broader social level because it doesn't apply to them. It's not something they experience. You and I are never going to be subject to racism in this society. That's the privilege that we've inherited on the basis of a colonisation process where there was racial privileging of one group over another. You know, at the same time, aren't we, you know, as Australians, as one community, aware finally that the historical weight of evidence is that where there's an injustice against one or one group, there's fundamentally an injustice against everyone because it means that we don't have a system of justice in front of which everyone is equal. Mm. And that that has a structural effect. You know, if, if you are a First Nations Australian without expectation of justice, before the law. If that is a, a, a structural expectation, mm. that means that the law is not working for everyone. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And it was and shocking today, I have to say. I've seen and I haven't I haven't uh, looked deeply into this and, and people online might have more on this, but the New South Wales police minister sort of made some comment about Is this the Lefty politicians, lefty running, politicians. Running oh, I was, I was about to their, go with their racial hypocrisy. You know, uh, when, when the, is this the, the man who said he'd really strip search his kids? Oh, is yeah, it that yeah, guy, yeah, that yeah. guy. And he, and he's, he's basically saying, uh, you know, he's using the all lives matter stuff again. And it is, you know, and he is, a, he is a middle-aged white man who holds a, a position disproportionate a amount of, of power based <laughs> on systemic privileges that have clearly benefited him, if not the people of New. South Wales. Let's be very honest. It's so weird, isn't it? You know, that guy is like literally the demonstration of why the merit argument is completely wrong. Wouldn't buy a car from him. In any, like, in 
any structure that was about equality and merit, that man would not have a job. Yeah. He just wouldn't, let alone be a minister of the crown. Oh, man. Like, and you just think in Minneapolis there is a family grieving their dead father and son and brother, and in Australia there is this ludicrous white person being publicly ludicrous in their whiteness and you just go, I'm really hoping to see more of that arc of justice bend in my lifetime, frankly, and I'm quite committed to it on that basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, oh, God. All right. Like, let's, let's... He said he would strip search his kids and now he's going to explain how racism works. Good on you, son. Tell us more. <laughs> so, look, let's, let's move on. I'm sure we'll come back to this because, as you say, there was a teenager shot and killed by police in Ohio um, this morning as well. 15 years old. Um, and and in our own country, we haven't dealt with the systemic injustices that have been occurring and continue to occur um, involving our Indigenous people um, and that we're aware of. And we have, we have records that show and we have recommendations of what we can do. And the, the Uluru Statement, you know, hasn't been implemented. There's all sorts of things that can be done. We just need to have the political will, the desire, the community come together to do them. And to recognise that actually providing justice for all doesn't remove anything from you. It doesn't remove your opportunity. It doesn't change your arc I mean, it does mean that if you are, say, a white police officer who murders a a black person, that you will go to jail. And let me be clear. If you aspire to be a white person who holds a badge and a gun who can kill people with impunity, you deserve to go to jail. If you're hearing this podcast and you go, yeah, but what if I want to become a cop and kill black people? Don't listen to us anymore and have yourself uh, addressed because, my friend, that is not okay. That is not a healthy state to have. You don't want that in your life. That's not what we want in our society. So we want justice for all. We want want the impunity of people who kill other people to be taken away. Absolutely. Whether they are police or ordinary citizens. You can't kill other people without consequence. And frankly, you shouldn't even be thinking about it. If you are you might want to look into why that's happening to you. All right, let's move on. Um, The COVID vaccine rollout continues to be terribly mishandled here in Australia. Unbelievably mishandled. And and I want to really... I love how this show has basically become what has Scott Morrison screwed up with the vaccine rollout this week? Ben! Well, now it's aged care and um, uh, residential disability No way. People with disabilities and people in aged care are copying it rough from this government, really? Some of our most vulnerable Australians. No way. Aged care and people with disabilities, that never now, happens. Now the Liberals are such champions of the sector. Now, let's be really clear about this as well, right? <sighs> so it, it emerged that only 100 of the 6,000 residential disability centres across Australia have had some form of vaccine administered, right? And we're talking about one dose, not both doses, not everybody in the centre, but had some form of vaccination. So we're talking about less than 6% of people who reside in or work in a disability support 
Centre. Ben, refresh my memory. Aren't these the people who are most physically susceptible to the impact of coronavirus? Now, the government says no, aged care is the most susceptible. And, and so they're saying, Morrison's government has said, well, the reason we haven't got to everybody in disability accommodation is because we're doing aged care. So you go, well, we don't really like the idea of trading off Australians against each other like that. I mean, we've just been talking about justice. It doesn't really seem very good to trade one set of Australians off against another. But if people are more at risk, there's an argument. So let's have a look at that. Okay. Well, a recent survey by the United Workers Union, the UWU, has found that 85% of aged care workers have not received their first vaccination. Germanicus is so outraged he tried to jump the microphone. (laughs) So that's 85% have not received one dose of vaccine. Um, 40% of residential aged care um, have apparently had some dose. So that's residents in aged care. But the but less than 15% of the workforce have. So you've got this sort of bizarre situation where some people are getting it who live there, but not the people who work there and who are coming and going. The people who are more likely to be carriers of it. You would think they'd be more exposed because they're coming and going from the facility. No problem. I mean, apart from the fact that it's just a massive problem. Just a massive problem. It's a massive problem. Bupa, who is the largest the largest aged, privatised aged care uh, company in Australia, who the Morrison government pumps literally hundreds of millions and occasionally billions of dollars into. But uh, doing that is so efficient, Ben. I mean, privatisation well, is such an efficient system. It's so efficient that of these 6,000 residents, as of April 14th, how many do you think have had their vaccines? 200. Zero. Zero. Uh, as of April 14th, so 2021. Privatise everything. Privatise Scott Morrison's face. Make it more efficient. It's it's just entirely it's entirely off the hook, right? Like it 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 defies belief. You've got you've got these surveys. The United Workers Union has done this survey of workers from around the country um, that makes it really clear. People are afraid. They don't know what they're going to do. Um, and at the same time, there's a private, one private centre in Adelaide has decided to go it alone and has applied for access to vaccines and to administer themselves and to do it all themselves. And of course, they've received permission to do that because, as you say, Morrison wants to demonstrate privatisation is the way forward. This is all about setting up to say, oh, well, if the private sector had been allowed to do it, they would have been able to. It's a disgrace. It means that thousands upon thousands of Australians who are in need of care, whether that's aged care or disability care, supported accommodation, are being left out and left behind. Now, there is a little bit of good news on this story that I want to I put on there. Um, the Victorian government uh, has basically said, we're just not going to let the Morrison government put our citizens at risk, as they did with aged care during Which the Which is a bit of outbreaks. a theme song of the Victorian Labor government of Daniel Andrews, well, really, people, isn't it? People, like, we are not actually going to let the Morrison government destroy Victoria. Well, people might remember that the, the Victorian government has a state-run aged care sector which massively outperformed the privatised aged care sector when there were outbreaks and, the, and you were far less likely to get COVID and far less likely to die if you did get COVID if you were in one of those facilities. It's almost like privatised doesn't really doesn't work. work. Doesn't work. Literally kills people. Literally kills people. Um, anyway, so Victoria has said we're not going to put up with this anymore. They've got their mass vaccination centres up and running. Um, 
a couple in Melbourne and one in Geelong. I think some of the regional centres are going to be rolled out over the next week or so. And they're also, Van, and this is really good news, I think, for manufacturing, high-tech manufacturing in Australia. They're saying they've put $50 million into being able to make uh, mRNA vaccines in Australia. Now, that's like the Pfizer vaccine and Medina. Yes, yeah. So the Victorian government is doing what everybody has been begging the federal government to do for a year, actually invest in some manufacturing, create some, can we say the words, can we say the words, local jobs. Some local jobs. Some local jobs and start building up industrial infrastructure again, especially around high-tech manufacturing, which is where there are incredible economic opportunities and job opportunities for for Australians. And the Victorian government is just going to do it because Scott Morrison won't. Well, remember he set up that committee and they were going to talk about how we recovered out of... uh... Gas. We're going to do it with gas. Yeah, yeah. Last century's technology for today. It's just just phenomenally unbelievable. Everybody was lobbying saying... Well, we need to be able to make stuff here. Like the the I wrote an article about chains. it. Yeah. Wrote an article about it. We talked about went, it on this, this is show. So great, you know, like the opportunity of coronavirus is that we can dispense with the old ideological arguments against local manufacturing. You know that globalization has been revealed as you know creating these sort of desperately disastrous supply chains. Everybody's running out of toilet paper, and it struck us that maybe, just maybe, we maybe should start making our own. But no, Scott Morrison is the prime minister in the opportunity for, you know, like a, a post-World War II style investment redevelopment was just smashed. So the good news is Victoria's <laughs> going to do something. The dog is just staring the, at me. He's the put go- his face the dog, right next to the mic. If you can hear mic. heavy breathing, it's actually the dog who has his legs on my lap and his paws on the table with the microphone and his eyeballing, or eyeballing Ben and we're not entirely sure why. He wants to be fed. <laughs> it's too early, Jim. <laughs> All right. So, look, that's the that's the update on the vaccine rollout. Um, you know, I'm going to move this puppy. Hopefully, hopefully, there's a va- mass vaccination centre coming near you soon. Uh, do. Uh, do ring ahead and book if you can. Uh, that's always advised. And it's the 1A and 1B categories. Just look it up online to see if you're eligible. Uh, and remember, when you are eligible to get a vaccine, get a vaccine. It's important we get vaccinated. We've talked about this so many times before. We're not going to go through all the arguments again right now. But I will say, just make sure you do. We're going to move on because the other side of the COVID crisis, of course... Is the economic side. Is the economic side. And what have we learned figures released today, Benny? There's two things I want to touch on really quickly. The first is that the iron ore price around the world is massively higher than everybody expected and Rio Tinto and BHP are enjoying record profits. And part of that, my fellow Australians, that we need to acknowledge is benefiting us as a nation because Brazil has totally collapsed. So Brazil is accounting for currently about two-thirds of the world's new COVID cases every day. Brazil is also, well, normally, one of the world's largest exporters of iron ore. But the problem is, of course, coronavirus is absolutely trouncing Devastating Brazil, Brazil. Because the leadership is, you know, the Brazilian Donald Trump impersonator, Jair Bolsonaro, yeah. who's just, is, he's basically a proto-fascist nightmare. Yeah, and under the Bolsonaro regime, which hopefully will come to an end and the glorious restoration of Lula, 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 Lula. Um, we'll talk about Lula. that. 
about Lula. we'll talk about that another time. But anyone who's interested in that, Google Lula, read up on it. It's really, really interesting what's been going on in Brazil. You want to talk about democracy and what it really means. This is what it really means. In Brazil, you've got people dying, you've got hospitals overflowing, you've got their mining sector unable to produce iron ore, you've got the world iron ore price going up, and we're benefiting. And why are we benefiting? Because the Mark McGowan Labor government in WA closed the border, fought off Clive Palmer, even though he had the support of Scott Morrison, and protected... Clive Palmer had the support of Scott Morrison. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Clive Palmer. Not the sovereign government of Western Australia. No, no, no. No, no, no. Clive Palmer and his old mate Scott Morrison, it's like like a terrible sequel to the 2019 election campaign, right? Back together again, doing over Australians, doing over the Australian export industry. Anyway, so... McGowan, McGowan Fort Palmer kept the border closed, kept lockdown restrictions in place, kept coronavirus out of Western Australia. WA is doing great economically. Iron ore producers, BHP, Rio Tinto, they they can all thank the Mark McGowan Labor government. Now, of course, what does that really mean? It's almost like socialism's good for business. Well, it would be. It would be. Of course, what hasn't necessarily happened because it doesn't happen is the trickle-down effect, right? No way! Trickle-down economics doesn't work. Ben, this is a huge surprise. Next time you'll be telling me that elves don't climb down the chimney every Christmas and bake me cakes. <laughs> you got some weird Christmas traditions in your household. <laughs> um, uh, so, I'm so emotional. What, oh, my God. <laughs> well, what we've, what we've seen now is that one in three Australian households are suffering from financial stress. Of one course in three. they are. One in three. How is this a surprise? Now, it's not Trickle a surprise. Trickle-down economics doesn't work. Pumping money into corporations and making circumstances really good for business at the expense of the people doesn't work. Lowering taxation does not actually create jobs. It's not a thing. There are no economic indicators that prove any of this neoliberal rubbish actually works at doing anything apart from giving more money to the people who already have it. So let me give you some of the economic indicators that show... <sighs> Actually, our ideology works really, really well. So the first is that... By the the way, we're socialists, just in case anyone didn't know, Labor voting socialists. Specifically, Labor is socialists. So so the people in the lowest quintile, that's the people who earn the least amount of money uh, or who get the least amount of money in their household, actually recorded lower levels of household stress than they had in previous surveys, right? So, these so this are, is when we had JobKeeper and JobSeeker and... And the coronavirus supplement. And we were doing standard Keynesian things in order to... Supporting households. Yes. Ensuring that there were mortgage holidays, ensuring people couldn't be evicted for, for not paying their rent, all those sorts of things that were put in place to, you know, make sure that human beings got to be treated like, oh, I don't know, human beings and not cattle. Um so that we, that that's a really interesting finding. That that demonstrates that when government does what government's supposed to do, you can actually improve the overall welfare, um, certainly reduce the stress levels of the citizens. It also this is an ABS survey, by the way. This isn't this isn't something that I've made up. This isn't something that one of the unions has done. This is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It also found that government. Support increased from two hundred and eleven dollars in the twenty nineteen September quarter to three hundred dollars, so that's about a ninety dollar increase. Now, what I want to say about that is that at the same time, three and a half million Australians, so it's about one in eight, let's say that, um, withdrew thirty seven point three billion dollars from superannuation. That's crazy. Uh-huh. That's really dangerous. And and the the 
And people spent that it's money. making the dog cry. I know. If people spent that money, so 13% of people put that money into their savings. So they took it out of their retirement savings and put it into their household savings, which means they've missed the big recovery. So superannuation funds have gone up on average 24 and a bit percent. And frankly, if you've taken money out of your super, you'll have missed that. And if you've put it into your, like a savings account. Or Bitcoin. You, you, well, you, you'd have lost money on Bitcoin. Some of those other digital ones, maybe you've made money, but if you no, put it just, you're probably going to lose money. Probably going to lose money. Not financial advice. Let me just say. Yes, this but, is not financial <laughs> advice. This is done for the purposes you, of humour. <laughs> but if you're, but if you're putting it into a savings account, you're not getting twenty four percent returns no, in a savings aren't. account. No, That's just a fact. It's not a thing to happen. Um, and and the reality, right, of that was supposed to be that the government was going to help people, and to a degree, it has helped some people, right, but. That, that you'd only get access to your super if you really desperately needed it. Now, 98% of people who applied for the early access to the super got access to it. They 13% of them used it to put into their savings. 6% used it to pay off a car. Um, 15% used it to pay off credit cards. 29%, so that's one in three, used it to pay off a mortgage or rent, even though we had structurally said, okay, we're going to make sure you can't lose your home and we're going to make sure... You can't be evicted because of underpayment of rent or non-payment of rent, right? So even though we had done that, people were either being pressured to take money and give it to banks or give it to landlords, or they were deciding to do that because they didn't want to do catch-up payments down the track or something like that. Uh, of course, they're going to there is going to be a cost to that, um, and and then another twenty-seven percent used it for other household bills. And again, that raises some questions because a number of states particularly the Labor States, put in place deferrals, mm. supplements, a whole range of programs, right? Um, now, it's really quite terrifying that one in three Australian households are still facing financial stress. JobKeeper is done. Yes, Jim, it is awful. The JobSeeker supplement is over. JobSeeker has been cut. Um People have dipped into their superannuation already, right? Like $37.3 billion is quite a lot of money, quite a lot of money. Uh, and now we're really at the back end of the economic stimulus process. So I do I do have this concern, and I do understand why people are feeling stressed about this. The budget is going to come in the next few weeks. I can imagine we're going to hear a lot of talk budget repair. That's usually what budget repair, which means, everyone, translation, cutting things. And the AFR has, is advocating for that already. The, they're, no they're, way! They're the AFR? Powerful the vested bastion interests. of progressive citizen-led values, the Australian Financial Review? Michael, I'm amazed. Michael Stutchbury. <laughs> Isn't that the same newspaper that basically said let grandma die as a COVID yeah. strategy? Because yeah, yeah. I've got to say, I don't know if that necessarily went down particularly well as advice oh, with the Australian people. The, the, the horror show of pressure that is coming from powerful vested interests who, who are saying put up interest rates, uh, who are saying cut spending in the budget, who are saying it's time to cut corporate tax again. Oh, really? The solution is to cut corporate tax. When the economy was doing really well, I can imagine the solution was, what well, was cut it, Cut corporate tax. And when the economy was doing really badly, what was the solution? Cut corporate tax. Yeah, 
And if the economy's just like at a neutral level and achieves balance, what's it time to do, Ben? Oh, well, then you've got to cut corporate tax. You really do. Not to mention we've got to cut wages. I'm waiting for that. Well, well, they're already saying that, of course. Oh, well, wage Australian case. wages are just too high. <laughs> so look, Just too high. Do you know what my favourite is? Sitting in the Qantas lounge and being all those people in their, like, you know, high-vis drag, just like Scott Morrison did with Twiggy Forest, talking about how just Australian wages are too high. And I'm like, yeah, enjoying your croissant, love, because <laughs> what about your wages? Because 10 bucks says, and I've only really got 10 bucks to spend on this, you earn a lot more than I do. Yeah. So, look, it is – there is a lot of financial stress and pressure out there. Every week, every week we have the same discussion. You know, the remedies from them are always the same, and literally none of them are based in the appreciable reality that if you want an economy that works for everyone, including – by the way, business, particularly small business, you make the injections of capital with the people. Yeah. And the, and the Reserve Bank has come out again in the minutes released from the last board Those meeting. Those communists and at the said, Reserve we Bank. we will not raise Those interest red rates. red flag wavers at the Reserve Bank. We will not raise interest rates until there is a rise in wages, and we don't expect that will happen until Tanks unemployment drops below 4%. Tanks into Berlin from that lot every time. It's, it's, Soviets at a flagpole, the Reserve Bank. It is, it is remarkable. It is remarkable that these conservative financial and economic institutions are really at the point of, of in Handing a way... Handing out copies of a little red book going, well, we really need to do this before the whole show collapses. Yeah, basically... By the way, Ben and I are not at, like, in any, at any point endorsing authoritarian no, Sovietism. No, 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 no. We're not fans. But I'm, my point is, Van, that they're... they're, they're... <laughs> They're standing up to the powerful economic vested interests and the mouthpieces of the AFR, the Australian Financial Review, that is, and the Australian... And the Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party, who who constantly say, constantly do things that put downward pressure on wages, even though they might say something different. They actually, what they do puts downward pressure on wages, while they advocate for higher interest rates, which, by the way, is a cost to the vast majority of Australians who either have a mortgage or pay rent to a mortgage holder um, and undoubtedly end up carrying that extra cost. But But what it does do, what it does do, what it does benefit is at corporations. Because if you're a corporation in Australia, chances are you have substantial cash reserves and higher interest rates mean you get a better return on that. Chances are that you're also, your investments factor in interest rates. So if interest rates go up, the rate of return would go up and you would get more money. Not to mention, you know, like a a nice healthy pack of Liberal donors who are self-funded. Self-funded in inverted commas. Self-funded in inverted commas. 15 billion, 5 billion a year, sorry. Yeah, who sit there um, waiting for interest rates to go up so they can enjoy increased capital for doing uh, nothing. Yeah. So, look, that's the that's the economic update for today. Some good news. Let's get so into the good news. So much grunting and sighing for yeah. me. I'm so I'm just I'm done. I'm literally done. I just want that you know beautiful like economic redevelopment moment. Like I want that moment to happen where we reinitiate manufacturing and we pump money into the CSIRO and we real rebuild TAFEs and universities and ensure everybody gets a good education and and build like a a world class health and disability and aged care service system. Like, these are the things I want to see in my lifetime. And then I turn on the TV and there's Morrison and the Liberals and, you know, today's chump 
from the AFR talking chumpness about chump things. And I really just... But, you know, look... The, I haven't been out of my dressing gown in days, the, people, just so you know, <laughs> not in days. Let's put a bit of positivity on that because what we are seeing, the other thing that we are seeing, particularly if you live in Victoria or WA or Queensland... Our Labor government's doing Northern Labor government things. ACT. And they're doing those things. They're doing those things. They're fixated, focused on doing that. And it is it is improving things. It takes the edge off some of the Morrison stuff. And I know there'll be people out there who go, well, that, you know, that's good. Then we get a good balance. No, no, no. You don't want You, you, don't you want, want a an balance. integrated economic yeah. program. And you want one that's so powerful, like the Curtin-Chifley governments in the 1940s, that it traps the Liberal Party in keeping some structures of fairness there. You know, a lot of people have these fantasies about Robert Menzies from the 50s and the 60s, you know, and how great Australia was. I mean, apart from all the systemic racism and, you know, the mm. structural sexism and, you know, the lethal homophobia and everything else, but do have a vision of an economic time in Australia that was prosperous. Well, Menzies benefited from the the structuralisation of the economy that Curtin and Shifley put in place, where they committed Australia to full employment, finding jobs for every Australian who wanted one, which was how we could absorb two million migrants from post-war Europe without an impact on the unemployment rate. You know, and they're the things we remember. We, we have to create a paradigm in which the Liberals are forced, forced electorally to do the things that are actually good for us. And you can come right forward to 2016. Medicare is a great example where the Liberal Party position on healthcare has... I hate Medicare. They've always been, hated has Medicare. ...has been to adopt American-style um, healthcare systems. Which everyone hates. And, and they don't do it because it's so politically poisonous because people love Medicare because in Australia we're increasingly aware of how important universal health care is you know even even just the last few months the last few months you've had Tim Wilson and the backbenchers of the Liberal Party arguing for bank owned super arguing to stop the increase in superannuation that everyone will get on the 1st of July and and Partly their own their own ideological obsession, letting people draw nearly forty billion dollars out of superannuation, has actually triggered in some people. You know, this is actually important. Superannuation is important. Like, sure, I, I liked being able to access the money now, but now that I think about it, some of that money is going to be good for my retirement. If they if they get rid of superannuation, what's that going to mean for me? So they've walked away from their attempts to cut the superannuation increase. Um, so, look, let's get on to some good news because we're going to have to wrap up soon. Um, there's good news about football. There's man. good news about football. Let's talk about the good news let's talk about, about football about good news because about a couple football. of days ago it was looking like really bad news about football. And, look, people, some people will know this, some people won't. My my mother's uncle um, played for Manchester United in the 90s, so that's Gary my, Pallister, Gary everyone, Pallister. look him up, legend, um, legend of the club. Um, so for those of you uh, who are wondering where my allegiances lie, that's where they lie with Manchester United. We went to Old Trafford and he cried. And let's be really clear about those allegiances. They don't extend to the Glazer family, the current owners of Manchester United, who, along with a bunch of other scabs, um, engaged in a despicable, disgraceful attempt to destroy football in Europe and, by extension, the globe. It's been an emotional week in the Madam Davison household, by, everybody, as you can tell from the sobbing from the dog. By trying to establish a European Super League. Now... In Europe, you have domestic leagues and you have promotion and relegation in those leagues. So you have a whole pyramid of football. And and 
And if you do well in your domestic leagues, you can play against other teams who've done well the previous season um, from other countries in Europe in the, what's called the Champions League or the Europa League. That's a very potted history of it, <laughs> right? Now, it's important because it, it inspires teams to do great things and it means that teams who do not perform go down the pyramid and they play at lower and lower levels. One of the great things about European soccer is that every game you play has a consequence. Every game. Every single game because it either gets you further up the ladder and gives you a greater chance of going to Europe, um, to the Champions League, um, or you know, it keeps you in the Premier League, or if you do badly, you go down the ladder and you fall into the divisions that are beneath the Premier League in the UK and this is you know similar pyramid structures throughout Europe but it means that and soccer South is America so exciting over. because yeah. everything means something and you're not just watching people kick a ball around in a circle waiting for a final that means nothing and in Australia lots of us who love football have advocated for promotion and relegation and in fact many most state competitions have promotion and relegation through the various divisions right because it does mean that every game is worth something and one of the Premier League seasons CEOs said this week um, on the announcement of this Super League, um, one of the great one of one of the things that he has to deal with in his job is that he doesn't know until the last day of every season whether his budget for next season is seventy million pounds or one hundred and seventy million pounds. Now, my view is good, earn your money because. That's what football's about. Football's about not knowing until the last day. Now, yeah, football's about risk and reward. That's and that's right. the actual entertainment principle of football. So, but, of course, we're in this situation where, you know, more than 100 years of professional football in the in the UK and Italy and Spain has meant the development of these massive football team brands. Manchester United is one of them. Yeah. Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Hotspur, who haven't like, won, a, won anything since this. In well, quite they won some a league time. cup in Shout out to my friend Ryan the world's most absolutely stick with it Tottenham Hotspur supporter but this is the thing and this is the same with the Spanish and the Italian clubs Barcelona Real Madrid um, Juventus like who, Milan, Milan and yeah, Atletico the other Madrid. Milan uh, Atletico Madrid so they have these um, massive, massive brands mm. because people idolise these teams and the players they get to play for them and the rest of it has global markets. When we went to Old Trafford, buses of Chinese tourists, yep. like the most exciting day of their lives, yep. the incredible... And any Australian who's ever been to Thailand knows that English football in particular is, is huge there. You can see branding from Everton and Liverpool and Manchester United, of course, mm. and, and, you know, you can buy different brands of Thai beer that are associated with different football clubs. So you have this situation where American owners of clubs yep. like uh, Manchester United, the Glazer family. Liverpool. And they own and they own a bunch of brands in the United States, yep. you know, that are sporting brands. I think they – I can't remember who the Glazers own. The, do they own the Red Sox in Major League so Baseball? So there's, there's, there's the Fenway Sports Group that own Liverpool. Uh, the Glazers own, I think, Tampa, uh, one of the NFL teams. The, the thing here is The thing here is that what they're trying to do – what they were trying to do was get... Is Americanise yeah. European football. And and they had 12 clubs say that they would be part of this, founding members of this, and they would find three more clubs. Now, none of the German clubs signed up to it. They none were of the French. None of the French, none, none of the Dutch. Because the they went, no, no, that's not how football works. Yeah, yeah. Even PSG... I actually got really pointy about it, even, and I was like, yeah, Even down. Paris Saint-Germain, who are owned... Um, by a, a Middle Eastern royal family and have poured money in and all the rest of it. When, uh, actually, that's a bridge too far even for us, right? Now, uh, when they're questioning the moral position that you're taking... <laughs> 
I think you've got to stop. Now, thankfully, this thing was announced on Sunday and looks like it's dead by today. Because there was a player revolt, yeah. because there was a, like a coaching revolt. Yeah. Jurgen Klopp, praise be upon him, was like, yeah, no way, this is not good. Yep. You know, and you, the fan base went crazy. Keir Starmer, the leader of the British Labor Party, was like, yeah, we're intervening. This is ridiculous. Like, you cannot take football away from the community that yeah. love football and just turn it into another transactable brand as if it's Coca-Cola or a pair of shoes or Crayola crayons and or something. Can I just say... You billionaire scumbags. How <laughs> dare you? How dare you put your mitts on our game? And this is the thing, right? People people in the UK in particular will know and will and do remember and the, and the coming together of former players from traditional rivals like Manchester United and Liverpool to say this is unacceptable. These clubs were founded, in most cases, by working people. By working class people supported right. by working class communities. Who put like, money in every week to see their team play against other teams, right? And and not not and not to fund some owners' luxurious lifestyle or to create multiples of revenue so that they could offload the club to a private equity firm. AC Milan has its own cryptocurrency, I'm just saying. Yeah, this is this is ridiculous. So the good news is all six English clubs have pulled out. Hey! Florentino Perez, who's the president of Real Madrid, is now scrambling around going, yeah, but young people don't watch football. It's like, mate, have you been to a public park? Because let me tell you, young people <laughs> are into football. They're just not into you. Um, anyway, so that's the good news. The good news is the Super League looks dead on arrival. We can all praise the footballing gods for that one. And if you think we're being obsessive and crazy about this, it's because we love football. Yeah. We love football. And, like, a whole number of things that we love, like I did not have to poetry <laughs> and oceans, we don't want billionaires to ruin them. That's right. That's right. So, and Ed Woodward, who is the executive vice chairman, or essentially the CEO of Manchester United, has announced, apparently, he was planning to do this anyway, that he'll be leaving at the end of the season. And let me tell you, that's actually, this is making a pretty good day for us Manchester United fans, because that guy is not very good at his job. I got the news about Liverpool, who are, of course, my, yep. the club my father supported so passionately, and whose fanship I have inherited, and I cried. <laughs> I'm such a sap. Burst into tears. Now, anyway, some now, good news. I've got some good news. Yep, Do you want to hear my other good last news? Last piece of good news before we wrap up. For it's about bananas. Yep. Let's go it's bananas totally about for bananas. bananas. So terrible wildfires in California. Oh, terrible. Yep, yep. Absolutely shocking. Um, terrible fires in Australia as well. We all know climate change dries out um, vast tracts of land and industrial process, habitat destruction, all these things make fire management really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. So an amazing guy in California whose name is Barath Raghavan, he is actually a data scientist, but he's part of a community of people who grow like heritage fruit and vegetables mm-hmm. and, you know, promote biological diversity in fruit and vegetables. And that's his hobby. That's what he's really into. Yep. He also lives in California and doesn't particularly like the ongoing threat of wildfires. Yep. What he worked out, uh, crunching some data models, is that actually one of the most fire-resilient plants in the world is the humble banana. So bananas are technically herbs because mm-hmm. of the way that they grow and they have um, a really high resistance to fire. They're not totally fireproof, but there's a lot of sort of syrup mm. in um, banana leaves that take 
flames a long time to burn through. Right. So what he did, working with some biological scientists and crunch, you know, using his knowledge of bananas and data modelling, mm. was he worked out that a 300-metre depth of banana plants yep. like, can act as a f- literal firewall. Wow. And he was like, if we do this in California, one, we can have a banana industry, like we can make firebreaks sort of pay for themselves mm. with a food source, but it means that we can create areas by which fires can be managed, that they won't be able to spread past whatever Certain geographical points, yeah. area that we determine. And people were like, yeah, but this is crazy. Why would we plant bananas everywhere? And he was like, because California's burning down. Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to manage the problem and we're going to try and use some creative thinking around what are the resources that we great. can use? I think it's great. Why wouldn't you do it? And I'm like, why aren't we doing that in Australia? That is a brilliant idea. Yeah. And there are, of course, heaps of different kinds of bananas, all of which can be suitable to different kinds of Australian climates. And if we're looking at fire management and actually getting the situation under control, like things like firewalls of bananas that pay for themselves with banana harvest and production is a way that we can do it. Buy Australian bananas, people. Love it. Fantastic. Well, that is good news. And that is the week on Wednesday. Germanicus has once again made himself just a total integral part of today's show. So we thank you for your patience (laughs) as our dog decides to headbutt and uh, play with the microphone. Um, again, to everyone, our, our listener base continues to grow. So we just want to thank everybody who continues to listen, who continues to share, continues to talk about it, reviewing Good us online. by sighing and grunting. It's really been fantastic. This is episode 34. Uh, we hope to continue to do this for some time yet to come. Forever. <laughs> so do continue to share. Do continue to get in touch with us. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much for listening. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Say goodbye, Germanicus. Bye.